Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, founding partner of ENIAC Ventures, Hadley Harris. Hadley walks us through his start in engineering, to then going into venture capital, starting his own fund, raising a million bucks for it, and then now, a few funds later, raising a hundred million dollars. I think I'm obligated to do the typical what I'm thankful for spiel this week. I'm recording this on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Feeling thankful is a pretty powerful life hack that one of my professors in B-School was really passionate about. He said that by thinking about what you're thankful for every day, it actually changes the composition of your brain to be more optimistic. It makes sense. And for a while, I was doing it before I went to bed every night trying to ramble off a bunch of things I was thankful for. Sometimes it was like, I'm thankful for this or uh, this awesome thing, or usually more often it was just something common in my life, like my wife, my dog, my comfy bed, having an espresso machine to wake up to. It doesn't matter what you're thankful for, just you acknowledging that you have some great things in your life. Life is difficult for everyone, even people who come out of Harvard do 222 and make a million bucks a year at Carlisle. Nobody's life is as perfect as it may seem. However, we all have an incredible amount to be thankful for. Even if our career, love life, or how much money we have in the bank is not where we want it to be, that's fine. That's why we work hard and hustle and grind. But it's important to step back and take it all in, all the good that we do have. I know that's pretty soapy of me to say, and yeah, yeah, I'll be grateful when I get that job at GS. Well, let me tell you, if you're not happy until you get that job, then you're not going to be happy when you do get it. You'll just make up something else to push for and be unhappy about. You got to enjoy the journey. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. It's so chill. No gifts, no expectations. Just come over, eat, watch football, go on a walk with the dogs, smoke a cigar. It's pretty good. I'm skipping it this year, though. I'm going to Punta Mita outside of Puerto Vallarta in Mexico with my wife's family. It's her dad's 70th birthday, so that's how we're celebrating. So here's my list. I'm thankful for my baby girl, Elle, my supportive wife, Mari, my fluffy dog, Smith, my determination, my family's health, my startup pay club, the Tiger film match, Go Tiger, this podcast, and for you guys for listening. I think it's so cool that this little podcast I started with a couple mics that I bought on Amazon has grown into what it is. I'm just super thankful. Okay, that's it. Let's get into the interview. Hadley Harris, founding partner, ENIAC Ventures. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Alex. Appreciate it. 
Yeah. Uh, these are the first words that I've said to anyone all day. It's seven in the morning, my time. You're in New York, 10 in the morning, your time. I'm happy to be speaking with you. Uh, you know, you're a venture capitalist. I speak with a lot of venture capitalists now. I would say very, very few of them knew that they were going to become venture capitalists when they were young, when they graduated from college. I assume that that's probably true with you, right? Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I didn't know what venture capital was, I think, until uh, till I was about 30. So uh, I ended up going to uh, undergrad and studying engineering and then uh, working as a developer for a few years. So I've always loved technology and, and knew I wanted to do something involved, even as a kid. Uh, you know, my favorite class ever was physics. I really enjoyed math. I uh, was really poor at, uh, at reading and, and anything that had to do with uh, letters versus numbers, but always knew I wanted to do something technical, and I always knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, uh, but didn't even know what venture capital was and, and never really thought about that till much later in life. Uh, yeah, and I, I mean, it's interesting you knew entrepreneurial too, because that really wasn't something, you know, 20 years ago either. Um, so, how, so like, you graduated school, you graduated from college, you went to Penn, right? And then you didn't go right into the entrepreneurial space. You started working for some companies, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, so I studied mechanical engineering. Um, you know, given when I was a kid, my love of physics, I, I figured that's what kind of fit most closely with, with physics. But I realized when I was there, and this is also the late 90s, that actually I was more interested in, in coding and computer science. And this was kind of the, the height or the early days and then the height when I graduated of, of the first internet bubble. Uh, so, uh, despite the fact I had spent almost all my time uh, studying mechanical engineering, I became a developer and worked for a couple of software companies. It's first as kind of a standalone developer and then growing over a few years uh, into the point where I was managing teams and, and building a bunch of product. And really loved that, uh, but also was interested in the business side. And I was very much kind of on the, uh, the engineering side. So, I ended up going back to school, uh, ended up doing my MBA at Wharton. The idea that I would marry my technical background with, with an understanding of, of business. Um, and then afterwards, when I graduated, I, I still just didn't know what I wanted to do. And I had an opportunity to join uh, Samsung in Korea in a, a program where you basically do a lot of interesting st uh, strategic projects around the world. I had never lived abroad uh, for any kind of longer period of time. I'd spent a little bit, but not much in Asia. So I thought it was just a cool opportunity to to do something new and, and kind of try and figure things out. Uh, when I got over there, I really enjoyed living there, but it became clear to me that working for a, a large company was not for me. So ended up moving back to the U.S. with the idea that I was either going to join a startup or maybe get involved with venture capital. Uh, one of my good friends and now partners, Vic Singh, who had graduated from business school at Columbia, had joined a, a, a VC in, here in New York called RRE and kind of saw what he was doing. And I said, OK, this is really cool. Um, and then was really lucky to link up with some guys up in Boston at Charles River Ventures, uh, a guy who, uh, you know, really helped me along the way named Ezar Armity. And he brought me on and I helped them do some stuff at CRV, looking at some deals. And then uh, CRV had just invested in a company called Vlingo up there. It was a spit out of MIT, uh, some really smart scientists and engineers. They're working on voice recognition. So I spent, started spending time with them and then joining them and uh, kind of got in at the early days. And then we grew that out for four years. And during that time, I got to do a little of everything. So it's just like 
an incredible experience. Got to run marketing, got to run uh, finance in the early days, product marketing, biz dev. Uh, so a little bit of everything and got a lot of managerial experience, got to take part in the board meetings. Uh, so that was just a, you know, an incredible experience and kind of went from not knowing what I want to do to all of a sudden being kind of very deep in, in startups. Um, and then we were acquired, had a, a nice exit uh, by Nuance, and then uh, moved to New York and became CMO of another venture-backed business called Thumb. Uh, we had a, a good run for a couple of years and then got acquired. And kind of during that time, we had started working on ENIAC and then really just been growing out ENIAC and investing ever since. That's awesome, Hadley. So, I mean, there's I have like 10 questions from, from what you just said, but I guess, I guess, <laughs> no, I'm just going to say them all at once. Um, so you you go to you go to Korea. You're working for Samsung. Well, first of all, it's I mean it's a it's great. I imagine you were probably very in demand, like having a technical background and then marrying that with a Wharton MBA. Like that's a valuable combination of skills. So, but you said okay, I still kind of now I'm interested in tech inside of me. There's there's a, still this entrepreneurial passion, but I'm gonna go work for a massive company in Korea. What was the like? What were you thinking move, moving there? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. This was 2006, and it was it was different times. You know, I meet a lot of MBAs now, and they they start companies out of school or they join um, startups, and that just wasn't a thing. If you looked at what my classmates were doing, they're mostly going into private equity or hedge funds or consulting or some investment banking. I just didn't really know what the options were out, that were out there. And the tech ecosystem was still pretty nascent and it wasn't kind of mainstream. It's not like we had, you know, shows on HBO about a startup. So it was still this world I didn't know much about. Um, and I just wanted to try something new. And that's why I, I moved to Korea, uh, just to have an experience and kind of give myself time to figure it out. Um, and then when I moved back to the U.S., you can't really interview for jobs from Korea back in the U.S. So I kind of moved back cold, actually moved in with my parents for a period of time trying to figure out what I was going to do. And it was actually a great experience because it allowed me to just kind of start brand new, take a step back and think about what do I really enjoy? And, and it kind of went back to it as a kid, you know, a love of technology, this entrepreneurial um, feeling that I had and kind of had my whole life. And I uh, was fortunate to link up with the CRV guys and then get involved with Blingo. And that, that allowed me to see kind of what it was like to go from a very small company to grow something out. And that was super exciting and, and loved those four years. Um, but also I got to see kind of how the VCs that we were working with, I was, one of my jobs there was driving fundraising. So I ended up raising about uh, 56 million over a few, few rounds and was kind of really involved. And I kind of saw what the, the VCs on the other side of the table we're doing, I said, you know, this is something I'd really enjoy because it, it married the ability to kind of start new things, but actually see a lot of uh, interesting technologies, meet a lot of super smart people and kind of be involved to a certain point in lots of different projects. Right. So you get back, this was Boston where your parents live, correct? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So you, you get back, you get back there, you're, you're, you're living at home again and now you have no job. I mean, I said you, you had to be, you have a very valuable skill set. So, but was it, was it nerve wracking not having anything? Was it fun? You said you got to do this like soul searching process. Like what was that period where you had nothing like? Yeah, it was, it was definitely nerve wracking. I mean, I was 30 years old living with my parents <laughs> and uh, you know, my friends from business school were all, you know, at, at 
McKinsey or hedge funds making a lot of money. My friends from undergrad were doing great things. So, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I couldn't, you know, they would take trips and things like that. Obviously, I couldn't do that. I didn't, didn't have any money. Um, so it was a little nerve wracking at that point. But also at the same time, it was liberating because I wasn't really tied to anything. I, you know, the rest of my life and especially kind of early in my career, different jobs, I was always kind of in a situation and, and never really knew how to kind of get to a, a, a another industry or how to get into another ecosystem. But it allowed me to kind of step back. I did a lot of research. I was reading, you know, TechCrunch and all these all these uh, startup and, and tech blogs every day. So it allowed me to kind of take some time and kind of get more of a bird's eye view of all the opportunities out there. And uh, as I mentioned, my, my now partner, Vic, was working in VC. So he was really coaching me and we were talking about what we wanted to do down the road. And we came to the conclusion that we lo both love VC, <clears throat> but we didn't want to be kind of one of these junior guys that spends their whole career fighting to get to the top. And, and the v VC industry, unlike something like private equity, is not really built for uh, kind of a pyramid. It's, it's mostly partners, and then you have kind of a smaller number of junior people supporting them. It's not really built for kind of over time kind of going to the top. The guys at the top don't really want to share the pie with the rest. So we kind of looked at each other and decided, you know, screw that. Let's let's start our own VC. So let's start kind of doing things that put us in a good position. So he ended up uh, leaving his job and starting three companies. And then we, uh, in around 2009, we linked up with two of our other friends from undergrad, uh, Nihal and Tim, <clears throat> and they had been doing kind of similar things throughout their careers. And we decided, hey, let's just start a, our own venture fund. So we got going with, you know, almost no money. We basically are savings and friends and family raised a tiny fund, 1.6 million, uh, and started making investments, which obviously were really small given how small we were. We were investing 25 to 50K in, in these very young startups. Uh, we actually had solid deal flow because we were kind of working at, in, in the venture-backed uh, startups uh, and, and in that ecosystem. But to be honest, we really didn't know what we were doing. So we were kind of learning along the way. And just slowly kind of we as a firm uh, – and as individuals started to kind of figure out how this all worked, we, we raised a, a, another fund a couple uh, years later of uh, a little under 13 million, kept growing a couple years later, uh, 55 million. And then um, in uh, two, about two years ago, raised uh, our fourth fund, which is 100 million, we just started investing out of about six months ago, which is still small in the grand scheme of things, but four seed is, is actually pretty big. Yeah. So, I mean, Hadley, that's incredible what you guys have built there, but we're only 10 minutes into this podcast. So I, I got to ask you one, maybe two more questions on the pre stuff before we get into, before we get into ENIAC. Um, so you're hanging around Boston, you're at your parents' house, you're talking with your future partner about your affinity for, for venture capital, but like the actual break in, I want to hear how you did that, how you got to CRV. And, you know, you, you hear this sometimes, like you, like, VCs kind of, you can hang around them. They have, you know, entrepreneurs and residents, they need experts, people to bounce ideas off of. So there's, there's a strong way to provide value to a VC without actually working at one. As you said, there's not a lot of junior people. So you can, you know, provide deal flow or interesting companies or introductions. And so is that kind of what you did to, to get your foot in the door there? Yeah, no, that's interesting. So uh, a couple of things. One, I was very fortunate to, to have the Wharton network. So I just started reaching out to every VC I could find who had gone to Wharton and just asking if I could meet them for coffee. And interestingly, to my memory, no one didn't respond. There were a couple of folks that, you know, couldn't meet, but 
you know, people like uh, Michael Moritz at Sequoia, uh, Fred Wilson, all responded, at least gave me some advice. Actually, Fred gave me interesting advice. I, I emailed them and I said, hey, and I gave him my background. I was like, I want to get into venture capital. And he was like, don't do that. You know, joining a VC as a young person is, is not a good career path. Go join a startup. And then later in life, you can, you can do that. And uh, that's actually what I ended up doing uh, partially on, on Fred's advice. Um, so, yeah, a lot of it was just kind of networking. And then the other thing that I did was I went and found interesting opportunities, uh, a lot with Vic's help because he was kind of doing that for his day job. Um, and then when I would meet with the VCs, I would kind of tell them about this thesis that I had. So this is back 2006. And, and my thesis at the time was that mobile would be the next uh, evolution of, of computing. Uh, it's something I'd been working on a little bit at Samsung. The iPhone had just been announced. There wasn't any app stores, still very early days. But I had kind of a, a strong belief that that's where things were going. So I, I kind of built this whole thesis around that, found interesting opportunities. My other uh, now partner, Nahal, had started a mobile first company. So I became an advisor to him. So at least I went in there with something to offer. I had this thesis. I had these interesting opportunities. You know, wasn't stuff that they were necessarily investing in, but they could understand that at least I was thinking about things. And uh, <clears throat> so I met with, with Izar. And he said, you know, we don't have kind of associates at CRV, so I don't really have an opportunity. And it's like, okay, cool. And then a couple of days later, actually it was a Saturday afternoon, he just called me out of the blue and he said, I have this project. I'm working on this company and it takes a lot of diligence and it's a little much for, for me to handle just as one person. And, and uh, uh, it's pretty, pretty technical. Would you like to help me out with it? And I said, of course. So I uh, jumped on and spent, I think, three or four weeks working on this project which was a company called Vitricity that was wireless charging. And, and interestingly, we've since invested in a, a company that's kind of evolutionary of that. Um, so that kind of got me in the door. I love that. That's, I mean, it's such a good story. It's not enough just to be like, oh, I'm hungry, I'm hardworking. You have to actually provide stuff. I mean, the job market's competitive. You have to differentiate yourself in any way that you can, and you, you did that. Yeah, I mean, it's much like when we're evaluating companies now, coming in and saying, you can't come in and say that you're smart and you're hardworking and that you're going to figure things out. You need to actually prove it in some way based on what you've done earlier in your career, what you've kind of accomplished in the early stages of that startup. You really need kind of to, to be able to showcase something in actual results rather than just kind of talking about it. Right. Okay. So then I guess the last little piece of the story here, which we haven't gone into is, okay, so you link up with CRV, they're, you providing them deal flow, they're providing you deal flow, and then they kind of say, hey, there's an interesting company in, in Vingo here, and, and you start to work on the company side, doing everything that, that you do at an early stage startup. And I mean, I think that, that's kind of a prerequisite for getting into venture capital is working at a venture-funded startup, right? Yeah, I mean, not everyone goes that path. There are folks that have that take different um, paths to becoming a VC. Uh, at ENIAC, we think that's important. I, I think having been on the ground and been in the shoes of the entrepreneur is really helpful. And probably the most important is just having empathy for their situation. Um, when we were raising money at Blingo, we ran into a lot of VCs that were just jerks. And, and a lot of them hadn't been entrepreneurs before. Um, and one of the things I always thought in my mind is that someday if I become a VC, you know, I'm not going to be able to do every deal, but at least I want to be a nice person and be respectful. Um, and, and I think kind of having been in their shoes and having pitched a lot and, of course, gotten turned down a lot, which is the, the nature of, of fundraising, uh, I think my partners and I have that kind of have that instilled in us. And hopefully that's 
that's really driven how we treat entrepreneurs. Right. So, okay. So you go through these venture back startups and then you link up with your friends, which is, which is cool. And you create a venture fund. It's got an interesting name. You got to tell me where the name came from in a second, but then you go out and what'd you say? You raised one point one and a half million dollars for your first. Yep. 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 Right about that. And that, you know, raising, as you said, the empathy, raising money. I'm going through it now with, uh, with my startup. Raising money is like, one of the hardest things I've ever done. Like our first, that first check money. Um, but I think raising money for a company, raising money for a fund, they're both very, very difficult. But I think raising money for a fund might actually be a little bit more difficult because when we go into meetings and if someone says, oh, I don't, I don't believe in this, like they can say, oh, I don't believe in the product or I don't believe in your traction. But when they turn you down for a fund, they're saying, I don't believe in you. So that has to be, that has to be difficult. Yeah, it, it is more difficult than raising uh, money for a company. And it's a little bit of what you're saying around it being just about you. The other thing, especially in the early days, uh, it's a little different now when we have more institutional investors like university endowments and pension funds. But in the early days, we were going and, and basically pitching wealthy individuals and what's harder about raising a fund versus a company is when you're raising for a company, you're basically meeting with mostly VCs and everyone you meet with, their job is to invest in a startup. So it's like clear why you're there and they may not like the company or the opportunity, but at least they invest in that type of thing. And it's, it's kind of clear that there's some level of fit, at least kind of at a very broad level. When you go in and you're raising a seed fund, especially in 2009 when, when seed wasn't even really a thing, you know, most of our conversations, they're like, I have no interest in investing in any VC fund, let alone seed that I've never heard of. Um, so it was much more around trying to, trying to find people that uh, were opportunistic, that believed our thesis, and that, that thesis I mentioned around, around mobile had kind of morphed into ENIAC's thesis. So, you know, we had this clear thesis that made sense. At that point, the, you know, the app store had come out. There was some level of, of, uh, of smartphone penetration, at least in uh, U.S. and Europe. Um, so at least we had this kind of really interesting thesis and we had backgrounds that lined up with it. Um, but just finding people that were even, you know, interested in the entire, uh, asset class was really difficult. So that, that, that makes it a lot more difficult than when at least who you're talking to, their job is to give money to entities like, like you. Right. Um, yeah. So you're, you're kind of fighting two battles at, at once there. Okay. So you have this, this mobile thesis, that seems, I mean, now, obviously, that seems like looking back incredible. It wasn't, it wasn't contrarian at the time, though, was it? No, it actually was. Interestingly, it, I wouldn't say that it was, it was, it was contrarian for two reasons. Um, one was it was not uh, normal for a VC to be so focused. So most of the folks we talked to, even uh, Izar from CRV, who, who ended up investing in our first fund, said, hey, uh, that's really focused. You know, you need to be broader. And, and the, the idea of a very focused VC was kind of unheard of back then. That's actually become less true over time. Um, and then even with mobile, it was still relatively early days. And, and people forget, but there had been a couple uh, mobile, um, like mobile was kind of like uh, VR and AR now. It's this thing that everyone kept talking about, but it never came true. And it wasn't until the iPhone and with the App Store that it really broke through. But that was still in the early days. So it was one of these things that's like, oh, mobile, like people talked about this in the 80s. People talked about it in the 90s and it never, never really came true. So there was still a, a lot of people that didn't think that it would become what, what it did. And, uh, and because we were so focused, you know, you're taking a risk. If, 
if it had been another cycle where, where mobile hadn't broken through, we would have been pretty screwed. Um, but we were fortunate that it became, you know, what it is now where the mobile internet is, is kind of the internet. Right. And so Hadley, do you attribute some of your success to, to like, to this focus you're talking about and to this differentiation? Like, you know, people graduate, you said they graduate from business school now and they're like, Oh, I just, I just want to go work at a startup or, Oh, I just want to do VC. And I don't really know what that means or how to do it. I'm just going to go do it. But you had like very clear paths, very clear views of we're doing seed, we're doing mobile. Like this is a, a high amount of focus. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I guess in particular to VC, I think when you start off, it's very important to be focused. Otherwise you can just get lost in the noise. So I think from that perspective, it was really important. And since then, we've moved on and we've invested in a bunch of different areas outside of mobile. The, the mobile ecosystem is, has matured, and now we invest in uh, a lot of AI stuff, robotics, autonomous vehicles, I mean, stuff across the board. So we've become less focused over time, and I think that's fine because we're able to, to build a brand, and it doesn't need to be just about our focus. But in the early days, and I see this with other VCs that I think are having uh, a lot of success early, just pick one thing and do it really well because that way you can break through the noise because otherwise you're just competing with the Sequoias and the Andreessen Horowitz of the world that already have these amazing brands. So from that for particular VC, I think uh, focus is important. Just in terms of life and kind of taking a step back, I, I think it's really important to take risks, which is basically what we're doing. Figure out something that you feel passionate about. Figure out something that you believe in and then go in and sell that vision and you're taking a risk if it's wrong, it's not going to work out. But if you kind of just play it safe and try and be a generalist in everything you do, you're not going to, you're definitely not going to have great success. Maybe you can kind of move along in life, but it's, you know, it's the people that take risks and kind of uh, follow their passions for, for something that, that generally are, are the most successful. Yeah, absolutely. You need that, that concentration, that, that focus. And so, Okay. And, and you were granted you're 30 years old when you were doing this. It's not, it's not like you're, you're 21 years old, right out of school, taking risks. Like you're taking risks a little later in life. I mean, granted you've got some incredible pedigree and experience and background, but still like you're starting from scratch and, and, and going at this. So, uh, that's, that's awesome. I mean, I'm doing the same thing. I'm 31 and my life is completely flipped upside down from where I, I thought it would be when I was 21, when I was working in investment banking now. So it's, it's cool that, that we both are, that you did it. You're a little, you're 10 years further along than I am, but I, uh, I hope to be not too far behind you, Hadley. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. If I, if I can give you one piece of advice to really try and enjoy this period, you know, it feels very unsure and you're kind of looking forward to when, you know, you'll feel more secure in what you're doing. But when, when you're in my shoes, and when I look back 10 years ago, those were some of the best times I had. And it was really exciting and it was scary, but it was also exhilarating. And um, I wish that I had been able to kind of take a step back once in a while and enjoy, enjoy it more rather than just kind of being nervous about the future. Um, because, you know, those, those kind of scary, exhilarating times are, I think, are the best times in life. Yeah, you know it's it's tough to see the forest in the trees or or, or however the the saying goes. But but yeah, I mean, my, you're it's hard, yeah, it's hard to be told that you really have to live it. Yeah, but it it is. I would say it is the 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 guiding theme of this podcast is that you know the universe is kind to those that are work hardworking and put themselves in the right opportunities. But yeah, having that trust in yourself and in your abilities as you go. I mean that that. That's difficult, but 
thanks for the thanks for the tip. I'm sure I, I definitely appreciate it. I'm sure the, the listeners do. So I, I guess, you know, one or two more questions here. I'd love to hear about a couple of portfolio companies, a couple of successes. I mean, obviously there's, there's tons and tons of failures, but I mean, that's just how VC goes. So if you want to talk about some good, some bad, and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll wrap. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it's really hard. Uh, I don't have children, but people say you can't kind of choose favorites between your children. So I feel that about our portfolio companies. Uh, a couple of the, the early companies that we invested in that, that we're excited about, there's a company here in New York called Boxed, which is a uh, direct-to-consumer bulk goods, uh, kind of like a uh, first mobile first, but also now web first Costco that's doing quite well. Uh, we were really fortunate to be the, the first investors in that company. And now uh, I can say this, I just saw it in the news, you know, well over a hundred million dollar run rate. Um, so company, that's one that we invested in the really, in the early days that, that we're excited about. And then um, recently we've been focused, uh, you know, over time we've kind of, because of our engineering background, uh, a lot of our focus has tended to be on more technical businesses. So we've invested in, um, some autonomous vehicle companies, and maybe so. Maybe I'll just use that for the one example. Uh, there's a company up in Boston called IC. We invested in. It's out of the, the cognitive computing lab at, at at MIT. And basically, what they were working on for for uh, their research was around how uh, machines and humans interact, and how uh, basically robots or or AI can predict what humans are trying to do and then what they'll do. So how do they utilize that? Is they've built an autonomous vehicle is constantly predicting what the human-driven cars around them are trying to do and then uh, try and uh, prepare for those different actions. If you ever drive in a Tesla in, in the autonomous mode, it's actually just reactive. So if a car kind of comes up uh, to your left, it doesn't, until it cuts in front of you, it, it doesn't do anything. Um, but then if it starts to move in your lane, it will, it will put on the brakes and it's kind of a jarring experience. With, with IC, if a car is coming on your left, it will predict the possibilities or the chances that it's actually trying to pass you so that it can go to the exit up there on the right. And thus it will automatically slow down a little bit. So that's a much less uh, jarring experience. And it actually is mimicking how humans drive. Humans are always considering the options of, of what the other car is going to do and then prepare for it versus just reacting to them. So that's one of a, a newer uh, investments that, that we're excited about. Cool. So, Hadley, I, I always kind of leave these podcasts with some type of advice. You already gave us the advice of enjoying the times that, that feel really shitty as you're going through them. Um, what else? Is there, is there anything else about, I mean, was business school worth it? Um, you know, however else, like one piece of lasting something here and then, and then we'll, I'll get you out of here. Um, yeah. On business school, I think it really depends on your background. Uh, I see a lot of people that are in business and then go back to business school. And I think that's, it's questionable whether it's worthwhile for them. Um, you know, if they're already in that field, like if you're working as a consultant for Bain and then you go back to business school so that you can become a consultant again, that doesn't make a lot of sense for you, for, to me at least. Um, for me, I was kind of a pure engineer. I had zero business experience. So, you know, just getting kind of the basics of, marketing and finance and operations was huge for me. And I, I got a lot of leverage out of that. So uh, I think it really just depends on your background and what you're trying to do, whether business will make sense. Uh, and then in terms of other advice, uh, maybe kind of my personal little life hacks that work well for me, the two things I try and do every day, even if it's only for five minutes, is uh, meditate and exercise. And that's had a you know, huge impact on my 
uh, my mood and on my happiness. And I think I'm a lot more efficient. Uh, so for what it's worth, that seems, seems to work for me. And, uh, you know, I, I try and tell everyone uh, that will listen that they should try it out. Cool. Do you use Headspace? I actually use uh, 10% Happier, which is a uh, plug for one of our companies. Uh, if you get a chance to try it out, it, I think it's quite a bit better in Headspace. It has all different types of meditation coaches on and different types of meditation versus it just being one person. Cool. I'll definitely check that out. Okay, Hadley, this was this was fun. This was a, a great conversation. Uh, thanks so much for thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Really appreciate having me on the pod. Have a great one. Okay, talk to you soon. Bye. I hope you enjoyed listening to this one. I certainly enjoyed making it. If you liked it, please leave a five star review on iTunes. Thanks. <laughs>